As believers in the Lord Jesus, we have a hope in this life that goes beyond this life, a much deeper and a more sure foundation that changes the way we live in this life and and it changes the way we experience our suffering and our pain in this life. So this morning, we're going to uncover this hope as we look together at Psalm 87 concerning the city of God. Now, before we read the text, I just want to remind you um, about this when we come to a text, especially in, in the Old Testament, we want to remember our, the things that you know, we learn from Justin week after week, like this redemptive historical framework of Scripture. We want to remember how God works through covenants with His people. right? So we, we know, in brief, that God created everything and it was good. And man sins. And in Adam, we all die. All of creation suffers and plummets into depravity. And then God promises a seed that would come to crush the serpent, crush the one who tempted man, and reverse this curse, if you will. And He promises to Abraham that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And then He gives Moses the law and the sacrificial system, makes that covenant with, with Moses. And then He promises David that there will be a king who will come who will set up an everlasting kingdom on an everlasting throne. And then we enter into the New Testament where it's like, da-da-da-da, here He is, right? This redemptive historical framework. We can't forget that when we come to even the Psalms. And so without further ado, we will read the text. A Psalm of the Sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mountain stands the city He founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the people. This one was born there. Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. Psalm 87 is a song that proclaims the glories of Zion, the city of God. And this psalm illustrates God's sovereignty and His mercy in His plan of redemption. The city of God in the context of this psalm reveals the city itself, but it reveals more pointedly about God Himself. And so the plan for us today is, I'm going to show you two characteristics of God that Psalm 87 illustrates to us, and then we're going to conclude our time together considering two ways that the revealings of God in this psalm change the way we enjoy this life and the way we experience the suffering and the pain of this life. So as we consider verses 1 through 3, I want you to notice that God's sovereignty is illustrated by the fulfillment of the city of God in the plan of redemption. God's sovereignty is illustrated by the fulfillment of the city of God in the plan of redemption. Look in verse 1 with me, and we, we see two things described. The location of this city and the fact that God founded it. So verse 1, on the holy mountain stands the city He founded. And then put your eyes on verse 2. 
The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. So this psalm, this song continues to sing of the fact that not only has God established this place, he put it on the holy mount, but that he loves this place. He loves the gates of Zion. And then verse three, glorious things of you are spoken. So now we've, we've kinda, we we kind of we got this wrapped up. This is what we're talking about, that the city that God founded on the mount, he apparently loves the gates and glorious things are spoken of this place. But of course, questions are raised. What is Zion? What is Zion? Well, the first time that Zion is mentioned in the scriptures is 2 Samuel 5, where David took the stronghold of Zion. That's the first time that it's called Zion, right? That's the first time that we hear the word or that scripture uses the word Zion. And then the second time is mentioned in the very next chapter when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple um, or into the, the city. And so... When we see verse 2 talking about um, the love of the gates of Zion, the temple points to the reason that God loves Zion, right? What's being communicated is that in the beginning, Jerusalem was God's unique sanctuary within Israel, and it's where he chose to have his dwelling place. So this is why God would love Zion. Why? Because what does the temple point to, right? It points to the fact that God decided to dwell with his people, to cover their sins, if you will. See, Zion's history actually begins when God tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And then David would eventually establish his kingdom here. And after David's death, Solomon would build the magnificent temple here in this area of Jerusalem. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar's armies would come and destroy that. But this was also the place that God was worshipped with festivals and with feasts and with sacrifices offered. And then outside of these city gates of Jerusalem, Jesus was crucified. It was here that he was buried and on the third day rose from the grave. So as described to us in the Old Testament, Jerusalem is the earthly city where Israel gathered to worship God, who revealed himself and dwelled with him. Yet Jerusalem served as a shadow to something far greater. It served as a shadow to something far greater. Well, you ask, why do I say that? Well, verse 3 tells us that glorious things are spoken of this city. Glorious things. So let's consider the glorious things that are spoken of this city. And I'm going to use one example because there's countless examples. And I'm going to use Isaiah 60. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for us. This is what Isaiah says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and the thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters, your daughters shall be carried on your hip. In Jerusalem of old, so sorry, to make a comment about what we just read, what we just read is this future glorification of God's people that's uniting all the nations in knowing the true God. That is what we just read about. This light. Israel has, the Lord comes upon them and there's this light that is attracting all nations to come worship the true God. So in Jerusalem of old, 
All the priests, right? We remember in, throughout redemptive history in the covenants when God gave Moses the law, right? Which always pointed them to their need of a Savior because it showed them God's holiness. It showed them that they were not good. They were not holy. And He instituted the sacrificial system, right? That, that allowed them to see that they need a covering for their sin in order to, to dwell with God. But that showed God's mercy and even given the sacrificial system and even given the law. And so in Jerusalem of old, all the priests in the temple, day after day, year after year, offering sacrifices, leading festivals, all of the prophets proclaiming the will of God, all of the kings leading, leading Israel pointed to the greater priest. It pointed to the greater prophet. It pointed to the greater king, Christ Jesus. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question 31, this is the question. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? The answer is because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel of the will of God for our deliverance, our only high priest who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father. And our eternal King, who governs us by the Word and Spirit, who guards us and keeps us in the freedom He has won for us. So as we just think about Psalm 87, verses 1 through 3, what I've pointed out is that this city has an actual, real fulfillment in the past. It was Zion. It was Jerusalem, the city of God's people. But it pointed to something greater is what I've just communicated. And to consider these glorious things, and we, we looked at the glorious things that are spoken as, as this promise that somehow Israel, from Israel, all the nations are going to be united. This light is going to draw the nations. And Isaiah also alludes to this, um, this fact that all this points to Jesus. In Isaiah 28, 16, he says, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone of a sure foundation. And so I want to bring to your attention now that the holy mount stands the city of God. This holy mount is Christ Jesus Himself on which God is building this city. And so we, we've just talked about how God is apparently going to unite all the nations using Israel and then we enter into the New Testament. This is kind of where we're left off. There's just this back and forth of Israel believing God and then worshiping other gods. God has mercy. They believe God. And then we enter into the New Testament where Messiah comes, where we know the Messiah comes. And in the Gospels, there's a parable of the wicked talents where Jesus is having an intercourse with his people, the people that God chose to dwell with, these, these uh, scribes and Pharisees. And they're having this back and forth, and they're challenging God's authority. And so Jesus decides to tell this parable, like he always does, and it cuts them, and they hate it. And he says this. So he began to tell the people this parable. And this is in Luke 20, if you want to write it down. A man planted a vineyard, and he, let, and he lent it out to tenants. And he went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruits of the vineyards, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent yet a third. This one was also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, 
What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, Ah, oh, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that we can have the inheritance and it may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And then the will and, sorry, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come, he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then he heard this. They say, surely, and they responded, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and what, when it falls on you, it will crush him. The reason I bring that to your attention, after mentioning that all this points to Christ, who is the cornerstone of this Zion, this heavenly city, is that we enter into the New Testament. And Israel has used all these, like, Paul in Romans says, what benefit is there from being a Jew? Well, he's like, you've been given all the oracles of God. It was with you all the covenants are made. It was with you who was given the sacrificial system, all of which pointed to God's mercy, and it pointed to Jesus Christ. And they missed it, and they come into the, we enter into reading the, the New Testament, where they're trying to use all these things to build for them, build something of themselves for God. So they're using all of these things that God gave them to point to Jesus, and they're using it to try to build themselves something for God to make their own righteousness, to use the law to prove themselves righteous, right? To use these things that God has given to build their own temple for God, to prove themselves. All the while, Messiah has come, and God is laying a foundation in Zion. God is actually laying the foundation, and they're trying to build for themselves. He's laying a foundation that will save them, right? This is all of what he's saying of when Jesus comes to the scene, even in the Sermon on the Mount, where, where, they're, where he says, your righteousness must surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not that they really had any righteousness, but they needed to be perfect. They needed to be perfect as he was perfect. And his whole sermon is, you need me. You need me. This is the cornerstone of which Zion is built upon. And so, you know, even Paul says in Romans 9 regarding Israel, and he says the Gentiles, the one who didn't have the covenants, the one who I wasn't in a covenant relationship with, that I didn't give my teachings, and I didn't reveal myself to, they have actually found righteousness by faith, but the Israel have not, they have not. Well, why? And he says in verse 33, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based upon works, They've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, has always been the point. Everything God did was to point Israel to him because Israel needed a savior. And just like us today, we need a savior. We see verse 2 of our psalm today. The Lord loves the gates of Zion being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. That He laid down His life for us. So to overview what we've just thought about, on the holy mountain stands the city He founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. 
It's not that these gates of Zion mean specifically the gates. What he's saying is that, like, what do gates do? Well, they, they kind of, they fence in the place where the people are. What, what's being communicated is God loves this city. He's established it, and he loves the people in the city. And like we've already pointed to, everything that was happening in that city then pointed to Christ. And that's where we've gotten to where we are right now. God is using the offspring of Abraham, i.e. Israel, to bring forth the seed who will be a blessing to the nations and crush the head of the serpent. Who is that great light in Isaiah? What is that great light Isaiah is talking about? It's none other than Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who came from Israel and has drawn all the nations to Himself to, to worship the true God. Notice the sovereignty of God on full display as we look at the city of God unfolding within the plan of his redemption. Brothers and sisters, just to even think about Israel's need for Jesus and how this all pointed to Christ. The church is the spiritual fulfillment of Zion, but there is a real and physical fulfillment yet to happen at Christ's return. In Mark 14, 58, they say, we heard, it, we heard him say, this is Jesus speaking, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Not made with hands. And so, um, sorry. In Ephesians 2, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it. In Ephesians 2, which we're going we're gonna to get here soon, and Justin's going to be preaching it in, I think, two weeks. Starting in verse 19, he says, So then, you are no longer straight strangers and aliens. Remember the sermon from last week where it was all about how the Gentiles were not part of this commonwealth of Israel, which we've considered a little bit today. Well, Paul's continuing. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a holy dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In a nutshell, how we see the sovereignty of God working, even in this display of Psalm 87, singing of the gates of Zion and these glorious things that are spoken, is that all the nations will come to Christ and they will worship Him and be a part of the church, universal, where we all come here and we proclaim our need for Christ Jesus because we're sinners, as we said a million times today already, and we're, we're great sinners in need of a great Savior, and that's exactly what Christ Jesus is a great Savior. So Zion was a real place, like I said, and it finds its spiritual fulfillment in the church of Christ. Jesus, which points to the real and better place, the city of God yet to be revealed at His second coming. In Christ Jesus, all the promises of Zion are fulfilled. Now as we move on to the next four verses, I want you to notice number two, the city of God illustrates God Himself and all His mercy upon sinners. The city of God illustrates God Himself and all His mercy upon sinners. Verse 4, Among those who know me, I, I mentioned Rahab in Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. 
This one was born there, they say. To keep it simple, this is a list of the great enemies of God. Period. This is a list of the great enemies of God. And Rahab is not referring to the prostitute in the Old Testament that we read of the story. This is uh, what they, like in Isaiah 30 verse 7, God basically calls Egypt Rahab, the one who sits still. I mean, it, it was this reference almost like um, an animal that's in the Nile River who just did nothing. He just sat still, right? Just worthless. That's what, so Rahab is, is talking about Egypt. And in the history of Israel, I mean, think about Egypt. They were in captivity for hundreds of years to Egypt. I mean, these are enemies of God's people. These, these are people and, and nations who hate God's people. And what's being said is that the enemies of God people, it will be as if they were born in Zion. It will be as if they were never enemies of God. Verse 5, And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High Himself will establish her. It will be said of this one and that one, this, this phrase is basically meaning like, and you and you and you and her and him and her and her, just like, they will all be born in her, in Zion. Nothing will keep God from saving the nations. This, for the Most High He will establish in Himself. That is what this is saying. That the great enemies of God will come to worship and love God, and it will be as if they were born in the family of Christ. That they were never apart from God Himself. And, the, and why this is so sure is because the Most High Himself will establish her. The mercy of God, that these great enemies will come to proclaim God as their God when they once held God's people captive. And then verse 6, the Lord records as He registers the people. This one was born there. The sovereign Lord who reigns over the universe will know each of His own by name. He, re he records them. Rob, Corey, Joshua, Doug, he records them. He knows them by name. And then verse 7, it ends. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. The psalm concludes almost like, and all the nations will, will sing this. All our springs are in you. John Newton actually wrote a psalm, a psalm, a song on this very verse called, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. In the first two verses, Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all my foes. Verse 2, see the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows to thirst to ever flows their thirst relieve? Grace, which like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. What a beautiful like two verses just to describe what we've even considered today. Like this is what God has prepared for his people. The enemies of God becoming the children of God. Like we've considered, which is uh kind of awesome for the fact that I preached this a couple weeks ago. 
And that you were dead in your trespasses and sin that you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were enemies of God. And from the beginning of the world, he decided to make his enemies his children. So much so that it was like they were born his children and they were never anything else. Our salvation is so sure in Christ Jesus, the son of God who put on flesh, who kept this law perfectly for you because you and I are sinners and have no hope. The law is no hope for people who are sinful like you and I. So Jesus showed up on the scene and he kept it perfectly. Every jot and tittle, he kept it perfectly. He fulfilled it in every way that you have failed to be what God says that you must be if you want to be with him. Every way that you have failed and still fail, Jesus never did. And he did it in your place. In the perfect spotless Lamb of God, also in your place, taking the wrath of God for you. Because you are great sinners. I am great sinners that deserve the wrath of God. And see Jesus in our place. Getting the wrath of God poured out on Him. And He died. He lay dead in a grave. And three days later on Easter morning, got up with keys in His hand, with victory over death, with victory over the serpent. The seed came. And He crushed the head of the serpent. He did it. It's really done. And He saved us. Our salvation has been accomplished. So much so, like we've read, it is as if we were never enemies of God. But we were, in fact, born of her. We have been born by the Spirit and water. We've been reborn. You have a new name. You have a new identity. You have a heavenly Father who, in Hebrews, tells us He has forgiven and forgotten all of our sins. Forgiven and forgotten. And so instead of knowing the greatness of God by his judgment, we know it by his mercy. Instead of receiving the due punishment for our sin, Jesus stood in our place. People who were once the enemies of God are now his children. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus put on flesh. While we would still even have to operate with this fleshly heart, even after he saves us, and we still take his name in vain, and we still lie, and we still cheat, and we still lust in our hearts, he died for us, paid for every one of them. So we've talked about the earthly Jerusalem. You know, Zion, the city of God, even in Israel's history, We've seen how the spiritual fulfillment of Zion is in his church, right? He's building us up into a spiritual foundation with Christ being the cornerstone. And those words of that song are just so awesome because they talk about um, with salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all my foes. So I just want to briefly come back to the fact that we were talking about how the church is like the spiritual fulfillment of Zion. Isaiah's great light. It is the church. It is Christ in us, His church. 
This is the great light. And His church is Jesus. And it's drawing the nations to the church. So as we gather, you know, as the church, if there is one thing that we're proclaiming, if there is one word that we have to speak, it is Christ Jesus in the place of sinners. This is the word that we have. This is the light that we come here today to sing of and to, and to pray and to, and to hear the word. It is Jesus Christ. He is all we have. He is all that we have. And He is enough. We are being built upon Christ the solid rock in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood as 1 Peter describes in chapter 2, verse 5. And now we're awaiting the final, real, and physical fulfillment of Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, established when Christ returns. And He will return. Just as sure as the enemies of God are considered born in her, He will return. And to show you, before we get when we jump into our conclusion, to show you that I'm not mystifying this psalm, that I'm not just kind of jumping from the psalm to Jesus with, with no, you know, with no, um, I guess, real evidence that this is how we sh- God wants us to understand this psalm. I want to read to you the words of Hebrews. This is so good. And I want you to see, yeah, I'll just read them. This is Hebrews 11. 8 and 10, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Even later in Hebrews, he says in 12, 22, and 24, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festival gatherings, and to the assemblies of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abraham. This that I just spoke of, the, the spiritual fulfillment of Zion being the church, and then also the city that we all await for, this is the day that Abraham was looking for. This is even what Abraham was looking for. So as we even look at Psalms, at Psalm 87, talking about this heavenly city, if I were to stand up in here and only talk to you about Israel and talk to you about Canaan, which was here today and is gone, was here today and gone tomorrow, this would be worthless. But as it stands, God is a God who planned redemption from eternity past. And Zion and Jerusalem and even this psalm pointed to something greater that's spiritually being fulfilled now, right? That God is making all things new, but there is coming a day where all things will be made new. And we've sung of it. We, Jenny read scripture of it today. Just to repeat what she said before we move into our conclusion from Revelation 21, just these three verses. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her her husband. And I heard a loud voice 
from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and he will be there. And he will, I'm sorry, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In verse 10, and he carried them away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God. The city that he has prepared for us. So as we conclude our time today, we looked at God's sovereignty illustrated by the fulfillment of the city of God in the plan of redemption. And we looked at how the city of God illustrates God himself and all his mercy upon sinners. And I want you to, I want you to see that displayed in the unfolding and fulfillment of the city of God, these things that we just talked about, it changes the way that we live the way that we live and enjoy the things in this life and the way that we live and experience suffering in this life, going back to the things that we even considered in the introduction. So number one, this, everything we've considered, changes the way that we think and experience the good things in life. And I'm just basically going to go through these bullet points. We have a true understanding of our own hearts. We know that we're sinners. We know that we still carry about hearts in us that are enemies of God, right? We have a true understanding of our neighbor's hearts. Everyone that we, we correspond with here today and out in the world carry about them the same heart, right? The same sinful flesh, although we've been born again. We seek to understand. We seek to show grace and mercy in these relationships, in our marriages, as we considered in the introduction. Then also, as far as our experiences in life, the things we like to enjoy, we understand that in this life, those things are temporary, right? While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we enjoy a nice boat ride on the lake. We enjoy a nice fish on the side of the pond. We enjoy just a nice drive on the parkway. We enjoy hanging out. We enjoy good drink and good food together, knowing that they're here today and gone tomorrow, and that's okay. I'm going to love the people while I'm here. I'm going to enjoy this drink. It's a gift from the Lord. I'm going to enjoy my food. I'm going to enjoy the things that I like to do. I'm going to enjoy that things, knowing that God created it. All things come from here. It's good for me to enjoy these, and I don't have to put all of my hope in it. Because I know it's here today and gone tomorrow. And like 2 Corinthians 5 says, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. God has designed the world for our enjoyment. And I believe it brings God glory to enjoy the things that He's created. And so we do this when we realize that it all comes from Him. That the things in this life are here today and gone tomorrow, but all that we need will be provided by Him. As He feeds the birds, He says, cast all your cares on Him. Right? He's our great protector. He has reborn us into His kingdom. Right? We're His children now. And then number two, God's sovereignty and mercy illustrated in um, the unfolding of the city of God in redemption. Number two, changes the way we think about and experience grief and suffering in this life. 
the sufferings we experience in this life may never stop. You might not have rest from the heartache and the grief that you experience in this life, but because of Christ Jesus, you can find rest within the suffering and the heartbreak and the grief of this life. Now, this doesn't always change the way you feel. I know. I know that it doesn't change the way you feel, the grief and the pain and the suffering that you experience. But it does change what you know about your feelings and the end of the story. Because you know that all things are working out for your eternal good. Just like Justin said a couple weeks ago, don't ask me how I feel, ask me what I know. This is kind of our attitude when we suffer and we, have to, and we go through heartbreak and pain in this life. Because our feelings are haywire. We doubt God. The list goes on. But He is faithful. And the end of the story is sure. We consider Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It's not to say that your suffering isn't real and that it really, really, really sucks. It's not to say that. But it's to say that compared to the glory, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city that He's prepared for you to dwell with Him, this is nothing. You can't compare it. But like I said, no, it doesn't take away your feelings. No, it doesn't take away the fact that you still have to suffer. But it does change what you know about the suffering, what you know about the pain you feel. And if there's not an end in this life, there is a place where there is no pain. There is a place where there are no more tears. There is a place where sin doesn't exist. And we are sure to be there. Like First Peter 5, I said, casting all our anxiety on Him because He cares for us. So we call, to, we call to mind, to finish up here, God's sovereignty and mercy in the way He unfolds Zion in redemptive history. And then we look at the fact that the wisdom and the power of God is Christ crucified. His mercy upon sinners. He cares for you. He cares for me. He recorded our name in the Lamb's book of life. He knows us by name. He knows you're struggling He cares for you. He loves for you. Christ is our only hope. Don't ask me what I feel. Ask me what I know. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, even this song that sings of the Zion that you founded on the Holy Mount, that you make the enemies, your great enemies, to be born in her. And we thank you that it finds its yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And as sure as Christ Jesus died for our sins, rose again, and has saved us, it's just as sure that we will be with you in eternity forever in New Jerusalem. We thank you for this. We thank you for the ways that your truths help us to enjoy the good things in this life and to suffer well. With, with good understanding. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.